Hi friends, welcome to the Purple Couch Clubhouse by the Ohio University Women's Center. My name is Rihanna Hunt and today I am joined by my fuzzy and currently napping companion, my cat T. Get cozy with us as we sit and chat about books or readings that we could all learn something from. I understand that life is hectic and you're probably thinking you don't have the time to read a whole book. No worries. T and I have been getting ready for this for weeks, and just like an in-person book club, I'm prepared to be the only one who's done the reading. The conversation will be guided by concepts from the book, and I will include the important context. This month, we're talking about The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor. Taylor is the founder and radical executive officer for the company by the same name. The Body is Not an Apology is a digital media and education company that uses the ideals in her book as tools for social justice and to make change. Taylor has a BA in sociology and an MSA in organizational management. She's an activist, performance poet, and transformational leader, working on issues like racial justice, police brutality, mental health, and more. So it's important for us to acknowledge that throughout this episode, we're going to be talking about comfort with one's bodies. And we want to recognize that body positive language has not always been inclusive of trans individuals. There's a great additional reading entitled Four Body Positive Phrases That Exclude Trans People and What to Say Instead by Sam Dylan Finch, which we have linked on our podcast webpage. The article discusses how body positive language can be exclusive to trans individuals and what phrases we can use instead to promote inclusive body positivity. So today I will be joined by more than just my amazing fuzzy cat. Um, we have Lizzie Hauregi, who currently works as the Assistant Director of Residential Life at Vassar College, a small liberal arts college in upstate New York. She got her master's at Ohio University, where she was able to continue studying and discussing her passion for social justice and fat studies. Lizzie is a proud Cuban-American Pomeranian dog mom who loves makeup, fat fashion, true crime documentaries, bad reality television, and any opportunity to talk about bodies and the politics of size. I'm also joined by the amazing Alicia Rogers, a medical student at OU in the Heritage College. She is studying to be the future doc of your children. Outside of clinic and studying about amazing little people, she considers herself a very amateur hit instructor and an aspiring polyglot in Spanguinese. She claims to be a bibliophile, having a library that would leave one to believe, yet they're all only half-read, which is pretty relatable. But... Among them, she did finish The Body is Not an Apology and has committed to reducing weight bias in, in medicine with her activist partner in crime, Sammy. And lastly, we have the wonderful Sammy Nandial, who is also a medical student at OU, although she spends most of her time thinking about wellness in everywhere but the exam room. She is an awkward <laughs> yogi, a ferocious hugger, and is very proud of her current Spanish Duolingo streak of 504 days. Sammy is very grateful to be surrounded and guided by those who live and breathe social and racial justice, who continue to lead her down the path of activism. If she could be any food in the world, she would be popcorn with sriracha drizzled, no dumped on top. <laughs> so, <laughs> I would like to start our conversation off with a quote which spoke to me because of my own incredible niece. She's four, her name is Layla, and she loves her body and gets super excited about every new ability it reveals. She began to make me realize how I think about my own body and that caused me to start to consciously control the way I talk about myself around her. So Taylor says in her book, quote, we did not start life in a negative partnership with our bodies. I have never seen a toddler lament the size of their thighs, the squishiness of their bellies. Children do not arrive here unashamed of their race, gender, age, or disabilities. Babies love their bodies, unquote. So how did you all think about the amazingness of your bodies when you were young? Why do you think that so many people go from being so enamored with the functions that their bodies serve to being so critical of them? I, uh, I really love thinking about this a lot because when I was younger, I, it's hard to think of a time where I wasn't, that I didn't know I was a fat person or a chubby person, however you would like to call it as a child. Uh, because I've, I've been sort of fat my whole life, and so I can't think of a time where I wasn't you know, thinking about it. Because I think it's also a thing where I'm Cuban-American, so my parents have always like loved nicknames. I think it's like a cultural thing. 
and I've always been called gordita or gordi or something cute like that, which basically means fatty, but it's like a much more loving term. Um, and I've always been called that since I was younger. I'm the youngest too, so like the comparison to my sister's bodies was always a thing. Um, and I do remember there was a time I, uh, when I, I was in a, in a childhood pageant, which is kind of like a problematic thing in itself. But um, I remember really enjoying it and never, ever thinking about my size at all. I was only five years old. It was in 1998. Um, and it was obviously, it was a Cuban-themed pageant because my parents are very culturally connected and like really wanted to instill that into us. There used to be like a parade in New York City that was called the Cuban Parade, much like the Puerto Rican Day Parade. And um, I remember being involved in that and like tap dancing and singing and like doing all that fun stuff. And I never thought about my size, but I was still, I, I was still five years old and I was still had that nickname, but I don't think I, I made the connection in the same way. So there was no shame. Like I remember performing, dancing and never thinking about that. But then, you know, middle school comes along and it becomes like the pejorative of the word fat is like really instilled in you. And anything that's different is, you know, middle school attacks. And I remember performing in middle school and having immense shame, like about my size and fitting into costumes and not, the costumes not looking the same in dance and like dance culture and stuff like that. Um, and so that was like when I really started feeling it. But when I was, I, I definitely can't imagine being in, in that position again as a child, not thinking about my size and just enjoying like being in a group of, you know, women and dancing and, you know, dancing to my to salsa music and just like having a good time. Um, it's crazy though, but like, because I, I never, I don't think I was born with that shame. It definitely was put on to me from other people. Um, and it was definitely not something that I just, you know, when you're like my nephew, he's two years old. Like, he has a big belly. It's like his, he's all belly. He doesn't, like, there's nothing he's thinking about. He's like, he doesn't think about, you know, how adorable it is, because it really is. It's too much sometimes. He's too cute. But he just, like, runs around what he needs to do. And he has absolutely no shame. And I think it's so sad that we go through that, especially as young women. Like, that middle school, those middle school years where you're just, like, so self-loathing. And, oh, it's terrible. And I would love to never have been poisoned, I think. <laughs> it's a terrible word, but I think it really is what happens to us. Um, but yeah, that's when I, that's when I really stopped, it's like, wow, t middle school is really when you really start thinking about your size or how you're different. It's terrible. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, Lizzie, like, um, being, being in middle school is kind of where I noticed that time where just things shifted, um, but like right before puberty and during puberty time is just, it's already awkward for like all young people, <laughs> but um, something in that, in that space and time started to, I feel like distinguish what's good and what's bad. Um, and, you know, I feel like we're, we're told culturally that if something doesn't fit a mold, it's bad. And I remember there was a time where I just, internalize that like I don't look like whatever whoever designed this mold and took that on as oh well what I am isn't good um and you know and I don't know really where this concept of like creating that difference or if if you're different why that has to equal bad but um I think of the other ways that I got that message of you know, feeling shame for the body that I'm in. Um, you know, some things came from, you know, my parents and their own insecurities and the ways that, you know, probably unintentionally they shifted those things onto me or um, I would hear the way that they talked about other people's bodies. And, um, and you know, you're already in a very self-critical time and, and you start to do a comparison and look, oh, do I match that? Do I look like that? And, um, and just furthering that, like, oh, I'm different, I'm bad. Um, and, you know, and I, and I think about this, too, of 
the example and, you know, I certainly don't want to go about this in, um, in a harsh way, but I think it's a real point to mention um, that this standard is often set with whiteness. And, um, and I know that um, Taylor goes into this a bit into the book, um, but <laughs> I am a black woman and my body was made with curves and a halfway flat chest, but nonetheless, booty and thighs all day. <laughs> and there's nothing about me that was going to look otherwise. And that's not to, and I don't mean this to shame folks who don't have that figure and not all white folks have that size or shape, but um, that was, that certainly is what um, at some point someone said, that's the mold. And um, if you're outside of that, nah. No good. Yeah, I'm, I'm like very moved by what you both said and like sensing um, different but similar themes in my life. Um, like, like you both said, I think middle school age was kind of like when people just got mean. I don't know what happened, but it was like everyone started to realize that, oh, we're in different bodies and like this is good and this is bad. And I need to point out everything that's wrong about you. Um, and if you're someone like me, who is like a very sensitive child, the joke was that I cry at two plus two equals four. I still don't get the joke. Um, but like, <laughs> um, I remember like, I mean, we were all, many people were bullied, but I remember going home and making a list and like saying, this is all the things that I need to change about myself to like be, I think I was saying pretty, but really I was saying to be worth anything. And like that took me out of my childhood body, like being in this body to live and to create change and to connect with people and turn my worth into, I need to look like this in order to be taken seriously, in order to be valued. Um, and I think every day is a just a reminder to go back into my body and to listen to my body i i want to be able to eat when my body is hungry and try to release those messages i got growing up from um even my parents who um with good intentions wanted their interracial family to fit in um, but a lot of that came through messaging about food and about health and about how to act um and so yeah Thank, thank all of you so, so much for sharing your stories. I really appreciated them. And Sammy, I in particular related a little bit to yours because I too was the girl who cried at everything. Um, but I think you're right. It definitely was middle school when I began to quickly notice the way my body was developing compared to not just my peers, but also all the young girls I saw on TV or in magazines or on social media and this comparison later became really damaging for my self-esteem. Um, but the images I was seeing were so ingrained in my mind that I couldn't stop thinking about my own body's differences, right? So Taylor has the answer to this dilemma. She says, quote, we need not do anything other than turn on a television for evidence affirming how desperately our society, our world, needs an extreme form of self-love to counter the constant barrage of shame, discrimination, and body-based oppression enacted against us daily, unquote. So I want to talk about this concept of Taylor's called radical self-love. Um, what is it? And in one of our earlier podcasts, we discussed Crenshaw's concept of intersectionality. So that helps us understand the intersection of oppressions. And so I would like for us to think about what radical self-love has to do with intersectionality as we're talking about this. I remember even in the book um, where she kind of brought up the idea of like, why does self-love have to be radical? Um, and yeah, it being more than, you know, like having high self-esteem and so forth, but um, just the power that it takes and the force and intention that it takes to um, to really commit to that. And thinking about that commitment and why it can be so powerful. So I'll speak on my intersection. So 
Um, like I mentioned, I'm a black woman. Um, I am in a very white world as a medical student, as a almost medical professional. Um, I'm a Christian, um, which in some places has its own connotations as well. Um, and um, and I'm also, um, yeah, the cisgender as well. Um, and sometimes I think that, you know, for a lot of messaging, again, going back to like body types, body forms. Um, and I also think about even colorism being something a little bit um, kind of a subsection and um, in different communities of color, but um, how that comes up as well and being on the browner end. Um, <laughs> times where I have to reaffirm myself that it's, it's a wonderful thing to be brown. It's a wonderful thing to have chocolate skin. It's a wonderful thing to um, have my own set of morals and it doesn't have to impose or infract upon anyone else's beliefs or identities. Um, but that we all deserve space and can create space together. Um, but also being intentional in um, who I am, recognizing that there are differences and helping to empower others um, and realizing anytime that someone else has to sacrifice for mine, that I need to do my part to offer that. But um, I don't know, I'm also a little tangential here and I'm sorry to deviate, but I'm gonna try to come back to it. I was thinking about this quote and I believe it was in the book and I was at the end of the book where it was the example of Erica Badu and Jill Scott. And they were both talking about, um, the reporter was talking about Badu being on the stage and Jill Scott was about to go up after um, and just being like, you sure you wanna follow that? And then Jill was like, have you seen me perform? Um, and I just kind of think about that, like, <laughs> why can't we celebrate who we each are? And it doesn't mean I have to reduce who I am or make someone else less, but that we all have a right to space, to safety, and to support that for one another. Um, but it doesn't need to be something that takes away or reduces. Um, and so I think maybe for me, what that radical piece is, is, is to really own that and know that that's real and that so many things in society say you have to tear somebody else down to have yours, but that we can challenge that and say, no, I, I don't have to. I don't have to commit. I can. I can be me. They can be them, and that is, um, that is, you know, my way of offering self love, but also giving that to someone else too. Yeah, I really, I really think when I think of radical self love, and the way that Sonia discusses it, it's it, for me. It's always been. I've always been like a very linear person. Like I'm like, you do this, you study, you're done, and. That's not how it works, unfortunately speaking. When I think of like, it's 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 more than acceptance. I feel like when I hear the word acceptance, like accepting who you are. It's to me, it's just beyond that. It's like this: you have to like really feel that you have this inherent value that you just have because you're a person and you exist. Um, which is really, honestly, the opposite of what everything like what society tells you. It's like we have to earn things, we have to produce, we have to do this, we have to do that to be valuable. And it's like, no, that's not what that is. And it's also not something you can just attain overnight and you're perfectly fixed and every day you're going to be looking in the mirror and loving yourself. And it's just, it's so much more complicated than that. And I, that's what I really appreciate about the book, about like, really, it's, it makes you think about what you're not doing because of your body or what you think you can't do because of the way you look or the way you are socialized to be or the way that you've been socialized to think. I think that's why it's, it's especially, um, I know, I know, I think there's like a workbook coming out soon that I'm really interested in reading because like doing the unapologetic, like you talk, you're, we'll talk about a little bit later, like doing that work is really hard and and, and kind of like, emotional in a lot of ways and it's unpacking so much of like what you say like we compare ourselves all the time like it's just it's and we and it's i wish i didn't do i just like go into this this mode where i feel like i'm taken over by like superficial you know crap for lack of a better word and 
And it's just like, no, like we, when I think intersectionality is super important, it, it, everybody's unique in their own way. And for us to compare ourselves to each other is kind of doing a disservice, I think, because of like, you know, we are a product of like so many different things. And for two people to be, you know, talented and great and comparing, it's like, it's like you can't, you can't do that because people are just been, the way that you move through the world have been so radically different than the person right next to you. Even your siblings, like you could have completely different experiences and pretend that like we can even compare ourselves and we're on an even playing field to begin with is ridiculous. And so I really think when I think about self-love and for me and for other people, it's that people are inherently valuable regardless of anything. Like, you, we are born, that makes us valuable. And I think that's really hard to accept for yourself because we are taught so much that we have to earn things, that we have to have control, that we have to, like, it's just, there's so much to do with, and then there's expectations within your own gender and your own class and your own culture, like that, that, you know, you don't, you also have mainstream society, but then you have cultural expectations of like, this is what you're supposed to do. This is what you're supposed to look like. You know, this is what the the correct Latina looks like. This is what, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's hard to like reject all of that. And I think that's part of it. Sometimes like those things you can embrace and like, sometimes I'm like, oh, I, I'm happy that I enjoy these parts of my culture and that I'm great about, it. but then I'm like, what if, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, great with the, with the whole sexism thing. It's not, not a part of my culture that I really enjoy. And so Part of it is rejecting those parts, but also, I don't know, I'm, I just, I go on a roller coaster thinking about other things. Like you said, it's hard to get back to the, for me, it's just like value. It's all about everybody's valuable. And I have to remind myself that like literally every minute of every day. I love that. Um, yeah, I think I'm in this um, podcast room with people who are deeply passionate about social justice and um, that infiltrates our work and our future plans. Um, so when I think about intersectionality and radical self-love, I think about how I've been very delusioned throughout my life that I can fight and walk beside people and advocate for other people's rights. But when I go home and I criticize myself, my body, the way that I look, the way that I act, um, I thought that that stays within me and that I can just isolate that opposite of radical self-love into my little world and like, it's not true. Um, and a lot of what Sonia says is that that's not true. And no matter what, while we are, are saying those things to ourselves, while we are, while we are trying to change ourselves, we are, um, we are investing in that ladder of hierarchy of bodies. Even if we are out there fighting, marching, we are investing in it. And so it brought into the bigger picture that my work cannot just be out there. Like it is important that when I'm saying mean things about my body, I know that even if I love my friends of all different sizes and all different races, if I am hating on myself, then I cannot be truly loving other people. That's just not possible. And so that is a big discord within myself that I need to fix. Um, and I can't isolate my hatred to my little room. It will spread everywhere, um, as will the love that I am trying to develop. Yes, I think you put that perfectly. And Lizzie, thank you so much for bringing up how hard this can be, because I think we all agree it's hard to unlearn some of these things that we have spent our whole lives learning. So Taylor does use um, energetic unapologetic inquiries and radical reflections to force her readers to turn inward and examine our own connections to these issues. And so I wanted to do one for us as a group. Um, so quote, living in a female body, a black body, an aging body, a fat body, a body with mental illness is to awaken daily to a planet that expects a certain set of apologies to already live on our tongues. There is a level of not enough or too much sewn into these strands of difference unquote. So the unapologetic inquiry that follows asks, in what ways have you been asked to apologize for your body? 
mean, I think I've always always apologized for taking up space, like always, and always for for taking up space in a lot of different ways, like in a classroom, like speaking, but also like physically taking up space. Um, I grew up right outside of New York City, so I took public transportation pretty much my whole childhood. Um, and I remember like physically trying to make myself smaller to make other people more comfortable. Um, when it's really just like I, sh- I should be comfortable and I have a right to be comfortable just like everybody else does. But I live with like that shame in my head like, oh, I'm spilling into the next seat. The person's going to be uncomfortable. They're going to give me a dirty look. Like they're going to just be upset because community already is a terrible experience and all these things. So I think I've always apologized. <clears throat> for taking up space, especially like on an airplane, flying as a fat person is just like a terrible experience. Flying, period. The, the, the seats are too small for like any human, really. Um, but I just feel like I like automatically shrink myself. And the part of my like self love journey has been like not being afraid to ask, are there two seats that are empty? Can I move? Like before, that would be something that sort of like debilitated me. Like, I'm admitting I'm fat to a plane full of people and I can all hear me. And it's like, they know I'm fat. They can see you. You know, like, and that's that, that's the part that you have to, like, fight with yourself internally. And so I think I've always apologized for taking those things. And it's something that I have to work on to this day. Like, when I, you know, I'll go into a room and I'll be like, oh, I need the chair. Like, I want this chair with no arms. It's a little un- it's uncomfortable to have the arms. And just, like, being okay with saying that out loud. And not apologizing for it. It's like, no, the chair should accommodate everyone. Like, I shouldn't have to do this. But yeah, I've always apologized for taking those space, and it's something I really have to. I still work on, like, all the time. Thank you for sharing. I will share um, an instance that I encounter a lot, like, within professional spaces and within um, like school spaces. Um, The feeling that I have to apologize for speaking up, taking up space with my words and with my emotions and with my passions. Um, There's a lot of tiptoeing around um, male fragility and white fragility um, and basically all spaces that we're in. I, I don't know why I still apologize or why I like, we're in, like in medical school, so we're like working in groups or why I have to um, feel like I have to say, oh, I think it's this, I might be wrong. Like, why am I shrinking myself? Because um, I don't want other people to be threatened or think I'm like out stepping out of my place when white men will say their answer lo- loud and bold and even if they're wrong, they're still loud and bold, but like, why can't I do that? Um, as well as just um, speaking up about issues or mistakes that people have made, working all the time to be more and more compassionate um, and more softer and gentler when I address issues um, because the blow up that happens afterwards, um, I find myself apologizing for just speaking the truth um, so those are just a couple of ways, but I will pass the mic. I've been over here. Um, so I also have a confession. I borrowed the book from Sammy. <laughs> um, and I remember reflecting and writing things down and I don't remember what I said, but I'm sitting here now thinking about things that like, I feel like just seems so small and unimportant um, that I know I've apologized for. Being in my body, being like too tall, and I'm not even that tall, 5'10", like, you know, um, or having too big of hair. um, Or, you know, being angry about things and, you know, again, a identifiably black woman and already feeling like mute yourself so you don't fit. Um, 
so you don't fit the stereotypes that have already that you know as soon as you step into that or as soon as you show that emotion they've already dismissed you because um yeah Thank you. Thank you so Thank all of you so much for sharing. Um, I will also share. I'm not going to make you all do this without participating. Um, so when I was in high school, I had this really, really horrible acne, like the kind that causes your pediatrician to tell you to go to a dermatologist, right? So once it started, um, my mom was helping me to get rid of it with very little luck. And eventually I ended up on Accutane for about a year just to help clear my skin up. And through the whole time that I was having this issue, I felt like I was apologizing for my face, right? I I was also in like middle school, which we talked about earlier is already an uncomfortable time for us. And so every time I raised my hand to answer a question and then people looked at me, I was thinking about them looking at my acne. And so I felt like Everywhere I go, I had to constantly have on a full face of makeup so that you didn't see it. Um, and in retrospect, like to this day, I have no idea how much money my parents and I put into skincare products and makeup and all of those sorts of things throughout my adolescent years. Um, so, yeah, as an adult, that's one of the things that I've kind of had to learn, unlearn, um, that you require makeup to go out in public. That is not a rule. Nobody made that rule. Um, but the cost that we were just talking about brings us to our next point, um, because Taylor next moves on to talking about how body shame impacts our consumption. And she cited that the average American woman spends about $15,000 on beauty products in her lifetime, which is a lot. Um, and Taylor says, quote, this does not mean we should be full stop averse to changing our bodies or that making makeup, fashion or aesthetic choices is antithetical to radical self-love. What each of us need to live in the fullness of our personal expression will be as varied as our individual bodies and dependent on our lived experiences. For example, when I have asked transgender people what they would do with $15,000, many have said they would spend it on gender affirmation surgery surgical procedures that change one's body to conform to one's gender identity. This answer is unsurprising and completely aligned with radical self-love, which is about abiding in our most authentic selves, unquote. So in this, Taylor's talking about the why behind changing our bodies. And she's saying that it's less about what we do and more about why we do it. So I wanna think about how this applies to the notion of health or what is considered healthy. And I wanna ask, what is the connection between changing our bodies and being healthy? What even is being healthy? What does that even mean? This is like one of my favorite topics, this idea of health that we push on people um, that do not align with what they want for their own lives. And I say we um, coming from a member of the medical community or a, a baby member of the medical mm. community, but um, it's just, um, there are so many instances of people that are larger bodied not going to the doctor be because being afraid that their doctor will ignore symptoms, ignore what they want, ignore any pain, and give the solution of weight loss like that is going to solve anything. And statistically, um, telling your patient to lose weight does not result in what the doctor is forcing upon the patient. Um, so this idea of health is... So much of it is rooted in just trying to get people to fit this default body. Um, and I think um, Taylor mentioned something called like poodle science um, in that area, like just picking one species of dog and saying that all dogs should look like this is not realistic and it's not healthy and it's completely antithetical to what people go into the med um, community to do, to lead people towards health. But instead we're pushing people away from their true and authentic selves oftentimes. Um, and inducing eating disorders in people from a young age, um, people of all sizes, prescribing very restrictive um, diets to larger bodied patients when you would never give that to a thinner patient. Um, 
and saying that that's healthy. So there are so many ways in which health is confused with the way our bodies um, show up in the world. Um, and I think those of us in the medical community need to continue to educate ourselves and divorce those two ideas and come to the exam room with each patient only thinking about what they want for their own health and acknowledging our biases, um, particularly racial, um, sexual, and size of them. I can't, I can't tell you guys how happy I am that there are medical students <laughs> that are thinking about these things as a fat person. Like, I could literally be brought to tears, honestly. But I think for me, especially health, has been this, like, tool that's used to make me feel like shit all the time. <laughs> um, and, you know, I've been one of those people who've avoided going to the doctor forever. And I never really had any medical issues that came up, ever. <laughs> but it was always just like, you know, you're past the BMI, you're past this, like, this is not going to be good. And up until very recently where I found medical, you know, medical care where I haven't felt that shame. Um, it's like kind of a liberatory experience to actually be heard by your doctor and like be diagnosed with something that like explains like the pain that you've been in. Um, where it's just like, there's, you know, there's all those memes, it's like, you know, a fat person goes to the doctor and they've been impaled and the doctor's like, oh, you need to lose 50 pounds. And she's like, well, I've been impaled. Like, there's, there's a, you know, a piece of wood sticking out of my stomach. And it's like, and, and to me, it's, it's just that shame that you feel where it's like health is unattainable for a fat person. When really, like, my doctor's like, yeah, your blood pressure's good. You're good. Um, you know, like, and you know, like what you said, a long-term weight loss is like virtually impossible statistically. And so it's just like, why are, what, what are, why are we so invested in the weight loss? Or being the picture of health and what that what does that mean for like all these industries that rely on that and I think healthy is just such a complicated word it's also so classist and like who ha who's connected to what health means and like do people need to be healthy to be worthy like there's some people who are never going to be healthy in the eyes of like chronic illness you're going to be literally ill your whole life like what what does that mean? Why do we you know that that's really what I think is, is something that I think about all the time and we never question thinness and thin people's health. It's like I had friends in college who smoke like a pack a day, we're doing all the drugs. Nobody ever asked them, Oh, have you thought about what you ate for lunch today? And it's just like it's it's just radical to me that we've always thought that and like that's like the pressure that we have as as, you know, as big people, it's just like, oh, they must be unhealthy. And it's like, I know lots of unhealthy people, but like, even then, it's like, I, who am I to have that conversation with you? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, why is that my right as somebody who, you know, that should be between you and your medical professional. And that medical professional should also be knowledgeable about all the other things that can, you know, affect a person besides their weight or in, in addition I'm not going to you know pretend that you know my size doesn't impact my health in some kind of way of course it does I, I feel like it would be unrealistic to be like oh my weight has nothing to do with anything because that's not true my weight impacts my like personality of course it's going to impact like my body and that's okay but working with those who have the care to understand like what can I recommend that's not going to be restrictive and make me literally hate myself you know what i'm saying like my this is the first time about a doctor's like oh have you thought about movement in other capacities there's all these different exercises that you can do that are not you know jogging 20 miles a day like have you thought about this have you thought about that i was like i have literally never had a doctor ask me that ever in my entire life what kind of movement do i want to be doing <laughs> like that's never happened and so i think i'm just very happy that you Good morning, doctors. Thank you very much. That's end of my spiel. Thank you for becoming doctors. Yeah. Um, thank you for one even saying that. And um, oh, you had so many good nuggets. Um, so many good nuggets. But uh, let me, yeah. What I was thinking about with healthy and defining healthy is so um, unique to 
the training here at OU um, as a medical student is the um, discipline of osteopathy. So um, a step beyond the typical medical training um, and all the same clinical skills and medical knowledge, we add on the component of um, integrating the body the body's ability to heal itself and the focus of wellness and um, three main pillars being mind, body, and soul. Um, and I feel like we we can very short-sightedly limit health to just being the absence of disease and that idea of just like saying what is not to define something can be very weak and empty and lacking. Um, but I think and, and one of the things I really am grateful for in our training is that how do the other areas implicate a person's overall wellness? And I think that when we talk about being healthy, I think it's really important to think about less of the what it's not, but more of the what it is. Um, what is true for a patient? What are their goals? What are they seeking? Um, and how did they define like being healthy? What does that mean to them? Um, so like, you know, Lizzie was just talking about other ways to be active that are conducive to what you like and what you enjoy. And it doesn't mean that it looks like the way to determine that you're then healthy looks like this, but no, it's, it's simply saying that like mentally you're in a happy place, you're in a good place and your body is rewarding you for that. And I'd say the same thing for myself. You know, I, I am treated for um, depression and anxiety. And for me to, part of what is wellness to me is to be active. That boosts my endorphins like crazy. Um, or like being able to get up and cook a meal. If I'm not doing those things, I'm not healthy. Um, and I, I think we definitely in the medical field can do a way better job of um, the messages that we attach to what a healthy body looks like and um, being very short with that definition. I think we have so much room to go in that. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing to hear future doctors talk about this idea of being healthy from such a different perspective. I think even in um, my limited experience, which I mean, I'm only 21 so I've only had one adult doctor to be completely honest with you but even just the difference between my pediatrician who was an MD and who was amazing don't get me wrong and my now adult doctor who is a woman and who is a DO very different experiences that I have experienced with these two doctors the way they talk to me and the way that they address my health concerns has been very interesting so thank you all so much for sharing on that question um and to end us today, I'm going to bring up one more Taylor quote. I know that we have had about a billion in this episode, but she's amazing. So we could quote her all day long. So, quote, radical self-love does not call on us to be less of ourselves. Radical self-love summons us to be our most expansive selves. Knowing that the more unflinchingly powerful we allow ourselves to be, the more unflinchingly powerful others feel capable of being. Our unapologetic embrace of our bodies gives others permission to unapologetically embrace theirs, unquote. So I want to ask what things about ourselves we can unapologetically embrace and how we can use these to become better people and perpetuate a better society. No pressure. I think for me, it's just getting comfortable with calling myself that, I think was like the most radical thing I've ever done in my life because <laughs> that, that word used to be able to ruin my whole like month year like when I heard that it would like destroy me and I think being fighting for it to just be like a neutral word like short or tall or skinny or you know like just fighting for it to do that I think is like the bare minimum of what I can do to be con to consider myself an activist and to talk about it and luckily I, I work at Vassar which is a very liberal school and you know I've been able to do work with um, with like body love stuff and you know, fat studies as an academic discipline that actually exists that's like things that people can get doctorates in like it's an actual thing um, even just like talking about those things with people on a regular basis I think is something that 
I think helps other people unapologetically embrace themselves and be comfortable with themselves. I think like even with my students, when I talk about, you know, fatness or being fat, some of them just like look at me like, oh my God, she's offending herself. She's what is she doing? And then when I talk to them and I really like explain the situation and how I use it and how I'm reclaiming the word and how it's just, it's just a word. Like we, we have to stop giving it so much power. I think that helps. I really do, like students will be like, obviously you shouldn't go be calling everybody fat because people are on their own journey. Okay. People are working on it. But when somebody calls themselves that you have every right to call them that too. you can do that too. You can be like, well, as a fat person, what do you think about this? Like, that's totally okay with me. And I think, I think that's just, I have to unapologetically embrace that part of me because I used to think like by wearing certain things or going to certain places, I, I could hide the fact that I was fat from people and they wouldn't know. And it'd be like the secret that I had, um, you know, as much as you, as many spanks as I could wear, that was not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so I think just, I'm open and honest with, with people about how you're feeling about your body too. Like if you're not having a good day about your self image, like, just feel like, yeah, it's not a good body day for me. I'm not feeling great in my body. I feel disconnected. I feel, you know, I feel like just being honest about how it's hard to exist in a body at all is just having those conversations in the first place. I think, you know, when I think about workplace culture and stuff and like everybody talking about dieting all the time and like, I'm like, I just literally, I'm that person like, hey, can we not talk about weight loss right now? And they'll be, and people will be really offended. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm coming from a place of love. I told you, you have every right to want to modify your body any kind of way that you want. But like, read the room. You know, you always have those like coworkers that are just like them two only having the conversation. And everyone else is like, I had a donut for breakfast this morning. Can we not talk about this right now? I don't want to be talking about this right now. And so having the courage to be that person, I'm finally like trying to be that person. Because you you know, of course you have friends that you can talk to about all the things that you want to talk about, but know, know the audience, know who you're around, know what's, you know, I think just, just being honest about how we feel and just, and I know that takes a lot of vulnerability and it's not an easy thing to do, especially like when you're in stuffy environments where it's like everybody seems to be so put together, but I think, especially since within education, I just think it's it's being authentic about how you're feeling. I don't know. And, and how I just, that's how you become, I think that's how you work on the journey at all. You just have to keep it real because it's not, it's not linear. My you know, very type A self sometimes it's like, no, it's not. You're going to wake up some days. It's not going to be great. And I'll be like, I'll blame myself. Like, but I've done so much work. And it's like, no, you are human. Stop it. <laughs> like you have to fight with yourself. I feel like too. For it to actually, you know, be radical self-love. You have to, like, argue with yourself. Mm-hmm. I uh, I was very excited to hear um, you say all of that, Lizzie, especially because, like, the way that I've been translating um, radical self-love in my head is, like, authenticity um, and sinking into myself and asking myself, like, as often as I can during the day, like, who is Sammy right now? what does she want? And just listening to like what my body is telling me and whether that be how I'm going to express myself in a room or whether that be um, like what I want to eat. Um, Because I, you know, like I talked about my childhood, I drank the Kool-Aid of sizeism and like white body supremacy as well. And so um, I struggle with an eating disorder through most of my adolescence. And so learning how to be authentic within my body and ignore the outside conversations and pressures um, that I have to limit myself and my experience of life is just like, that is power to me to just be like, I I don't have to listen to um, this person who skipped lunch because they had a big dinner last night. I'm listening to my body and I want to eat right now. I'm very hungry right now. I'm going to eat after we get off this podcast. <laughs> I'm so excited. Um, but yeah, that authenticity thing, because I just know that I have the answer for inside of my body and that looking externally um, to sources that are not authentic is mostly going to be damaging to me. I'm definitely on that authentic train. You both have said it so, so, so well. Um, 
Yeah. And it, it is hard um, because sometimes it's really challenging, some very ingrained thoughts um, to just say, like, for me, for example, is like, I don't need to work out six days a week to not look like what my uncle said the rest of my family looks like because they quit on themselves or whatever, whatever. And it's like, but you know what? My body is not is not up for it today. And the reason I work out is not to, it shouldn't be to avoid a certain appearance. It should be because this brings me joy and I feel good and it's empowering. Um, and, and kind of the same last night, oh my gosh, I have this like amazing like shrimp crab ravioli with this like lemon butter sauce I made. It's so freaking good. And I ate more than this. I was trying to limit myself to the serving portion. And I had to be like, nah, this is delicious. And my body is still craving for more of it. Give it what it wants. Um, and it doesn't mean that I have to punish myself tomorrow with working out hard or anything. It's like, no, I'm allowed to enjoy what my body is asking of me and that that is okay and that there's nothing wrong in it. And it doesn't mean there's some consequence because of that. It's simply to honor, honor me and to honor, honor her, her good. Um, but yeah, that is that is definitely my commitment. And this book was really, really so powerful and so amazing to um, just to really call out um, things that I've let really dictate beliefs about myself to really recognize them, to really see them for what they are, um, kind of give source to some things and, and really determine is this a value I want to keep or is this one I want to let go of? And um, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to borrow the book <laughs> and, <laughs> and even the chance now to, to speak about it and really commit to radical self-love. Thank you all so much. I, oh, Alicia, that got me, that got me because this book really was so powerful for me too. I'm, um, full transparency very near the beginning of my own self-love journey and so reading this book was was so transformational in pointing out all of the things that I need to unlearn that I didn't realize that were things I had learned at some point in time so I totally feel everything you're saying um, and I want to thank all of you so 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 much for joining our episode today and for being here and I have so enjoyed our conversation and I really hope thank that you so much you yeah. have as well awesome. And thank you all so much for tuning in today. This has been the Purple Couch Clubhouse from the Ohio University Women's Center. We have been reading Sonia Renee Taylor's The Body Is Not an Apology. If you enjoyed today's discussion, check out thebodyisnotanapology.com for more information about the company and the movement. Or you can head to ohio.edu slash diversity slash women's dash center for more amazing programs and events. Until next time, folks, have an amazing day and keep growing with all of us here at the Purple Couch.